the first century apostolic fathers, those non-apostles who knew the apostles, or who are alleged to have known the apostles, were steeped in the teachings of the Old Testament, particularly, uh, to a lesser extent, the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha, and of course also largely steeped in the teaching of the New Testament, so that the views that they express in their writings, these apostolic fathers, are to be seen as a continuation of theological reflection on the meaning of the Old and the New Testaments themselves. An appropriate place for us to start this study of the eschatology of victory of the first century apostolic fathers, therefore, would be the very last words of the New Testament. You know, after being told in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5 that those in the church triumphant who will bear the name of God on their forehead uh, unto all eternity and that they shall serve him as his slaves forever having overcome the, the 666 mark of the beasts on their foreheads through the 333 ontological trinity Father, Son, Holy Spirit superior mark of the triune God on their foreheads having been told that which might have been an appropriate place for the Bible to have ended, there are two further statements that are made in the canonical scriptures that serve as a useful bridge to the teaching of the apostolic fathers. And those are, a few verses later, blessed are those who keep the commandments of God uh, so that their name can be written or can be found written in the book of life. And then the closing statement of uh, revelation a reminder that if anybody as much as tries to subtract anything from what has been written in this book God will subtract that person's name from the Lamb's book of life if anyone should desire to add anything to that book other than what is stated God will add to that person all of the plagues that have been spoken about in the book of Revelation and you recall that the plagues that have been spoken about in the book of Revelation are poured out especially in the 16th chapter and elsewhere too particularly on those who are ungodly who are thieves who are sorcerers who are adulterers and who are those that break the commandments of Jehovah now in coming to the apostolic fathers that emerge from this matrix. All of these writings are post-scriptural. They come after scripture. Therefore, they are uninspired writings. Nevertheless, like the apocryphal writings mentioned in an earlier lecture, these writings of the apostolic fathers are nevertheless valuable accounts of the way in which their writers understood the teachings of scripture. Let us begin by giving relevant excerpts from the early church fathers of the first few Christian centuries. But before doing so, I think it's appropriate that we make the following remarks, and uh, at your leisure we would ask you to check out the accuracy of these allegations that we are about to make. First, the modern pre-tribulationistic claim 
of dispensationalists today is, of course, that all, or at least most, of the early church fathers were dispensationalists, or at least classic premillennialists, and that they are alleged to have believed in an imminent return of Christ and an any moment rapture of the church before the beginning of what dispensationalists call the Great Tribulation. Let me say that this impression is not supported by the historical evidence. If it were to be supported by the historical internal evidence of the writings of the Apostolic Fathers, as is alleged, I would have to say that the Apostolic Fathers, who knew the Apostles, uh, were at war with the clear eschatology of victory which the Apostles themselves enshrined in their writing. But we don't even need to take such an extreme uh, assessment. If we will but dispassionately look at the writings of the Apostolic Fathers, I believe we will discover exactly the same emphasis, for the most part, uh, as we find in the writings of the Apostles themselves. Indeed, it has been point pointed out by the modern classic premillennialist scholar, Professor George Ladd, a man who is not a dispensationalist, but who is a premillennialist, Ladd has pointed out, while believing in a prior physical resurrection of Christians to be followed by a thousand years uh, and then a later physical resurrection of non-Christians, Ladd has told us that every church father who deals with this subject, the writings of the early church, expected the church to suffer at the hands of Antichrist. What does that mean? Well, it means that they believed Antichrist was with them then and was not an end-time eschatological figure who would only emerge sometime after 1948 and the re-establishment of the non-Christian state of Israel. It means further that they believed uh, with Paul in the book of Acts that uh, it is through much tribulation that we are to go through into the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. Says Ladd, and I quote him, we can find no trace of pre-tribulationism in the early church. It's not there. No modern uh, pre-tribulationist, says Ladd, has successfully proved that this particular doctrine was held by any of the church fathers or students of the word before the 19th century, unquote, the premillennialist George Eldon Ladd. This means that there is no trace at all of dispensationalism in the early church fathers, nor even in later church history, until the sudden occurrence of the tongue-speaking overnight phenomenon around A.D. 1830, from which place in Scotland this new dispensationalist eschatology, this deviation from the faith once and for all delivered, was speedily disseminated via Derby and the Schofield Bible and D.L. Moody and Dallas Theological Seminary, especially in the United States, but praise the Lord only very minimally elsewhere in the world, even down to the present age. Second, it needs to be said that though the Bible does of course teach the future physical so-called rapture or catching up of the saints into the air at the final coming of Christ, the premillennial idea of a double resurrection, the idea that this physical end-time, quote, rapture, unquote, of the living saints, 
immediately after the physical resurrection of the dead saints, the idea that that will be followed by a thousand years long visible reign of Christ himself here on this earth, before the physical resurrection of the wicked dead, this idea is not reminiscent of the Old Testament or the New Testament or even of the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha. It's reminiscent of Zoroastrian teaching. Fifth century Persian paganism. The idea seems to be unknown to scripture, although, of course, an attempt is made by some to try to establish this unbiblical teaching by appealing to the solitary and difficult to understand passage of Revelation chapter 20, which we might discuss a little later. Now, this double resurrection teaching, premillennialism, as defined above, we allege is foreign to scripture. On the other hand, we should never confuse premillennialism as such with the doctrine of the golden future age. The idea that there would be a time of spiritual and physical prosperity here on earth at some or other time before, uh, between the Messiah's incarnation and the final judgment. You see, we may not confuse these issues because they're not the same. Seventh-day Adventists are premillennialists, but they reject any future earthly golden age. Conversely, the 1658 Declaration of the Puritans, who signed the Savoy Confession, chapter 25, paragraph 5, did expect an earthly golden age right before Christ's final coming and final judgment, while specifically repudiating premillennialism. Third, certainly the Old Testament, like the Puritans, seems to teach that the first advent of the Messiah will be followed by a long period of prosperity of undeclared length here on earth. This is deemed to take place prior to the physical resurrection of the dead saints and of the wicked dead simultaneously immediately before the final judgment. So too, between the Old Testament and the New Testament times, the Israelitic Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha also teach that the prophesied and soon advent of the Messiah would be followed by a long-lasting time of earthly blessings and prosperity, during which time Satan would be bound, and which time of binding would in turn itself be succeeded by the contemporaneous physical resurrection of the blessed dead and the wicked dead unto final judgment right prior to the inauguration of the eternal state. And in exactly the same perspective, the New Testament, including Revelation 20, seems to teach that Christ's messianic reign, which commenced at his first advent with his incarnation and his earthly preaching of the kingdom of God, but which got underway especially at his resurrection from the dead and his ascension and heavenly session, will constantly expand and effect glorious improvements to the condition of the earth and its inhabitants until it brings blessings worldwide. A so-called thousand years after that, Revelation 20 seems to teach us further, Christ will simultaneously resurrect the dead saints and the wicked dead unto their final reward or their punishment at the end of history. 
Therefore, Revelation 20's first resurrection seems to refer to the spiritual awakening of the elect whenever they are regenerated by the gospel preaching of the kingdom of God. While Revelation 20's living again of the rest of the dead would seem to refer to the physical resurrection of the wicked at the time when all the dead will be physically resurrected in order to be rewarded or punished at the final judgment right prior to the commencement of the eternal state. We must now ask, forth, where did the non-dispensational, non-pre-tribulationistic, classic premillennial teaching come from? What are the roots of this teaching of a physical resurrection of the saints, separated by a thousand subsequent years from a following physical resurrection of the wicked? Well, Barthuk and Hookstra trace the roots of this classic premillennialism back to the ancient pagan religions of Babylon and Persia. From Babylon, it would seem, this teaching spread into Persia, giving rise to premillennialistic Zoroastrianism. And centuries later, through the agency of the Oriental religions such as Mithraism, Mandaeism, and Manichaeism, which were then prevalent throughout the Roman Empire, this classic premillennialism began to influence the thinking of even some Christians in the empire, and especially in Phrygia, in Asia Minor, in the Roman Empire, particularly from the time of the middle of the second century of the Christian era, that is, from no earlier than fully one century after the completion of the New Testament, and even then on a very limited geographical scale. We find traces of this classic premillennialism, uh, allegedly of pagan origin, beginning to infect the thinking of good Christian men, such as Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and perhaps Tertullian. Although when I get to Tertullian, I'm going to make out a good case. He could have been a postmillennialist and is not necessarily a premillennialist. But perhaps Tertullian can be argued either way, whose views in the area of soteriology and sacramentology and church government and other matters were also unorthodox in spite of the greatness of these three men in other areas of Christian doctrine. But even before that time, before the time of Justin Martyr, that is to say, the pre-New Testament Israelites and the early Christians lived more closely to the Bible and to the Bible alone, so that in them, before Justin Martyr, there is no trace whatsoever of this classic premillennialist doctrine of two widely separated physical double resurrections. Again, this has nothing to do with the idea of the messianic advent of the earthly golden age of the future, which is clearly revealed from the very beginning of God's dealings with man in canonical scripture and even in the Apocrypha. You see, the pre-Christian pagan ideas of a golden age as opposed to the pre-Christian pagan ideas about two resurrections are finally but perverted remnants of God's original revelation to all men prior to the great flood and the great dispersion subsequently kept alive by God's continuing revelation to all men everywhere but they are to be carefully monitored by God's special revelation in scripture and scripture alone which is the key 
to the, of the extent to which their teaching is accurate. It's only from the middle of the second century AD that the apparently Babylonian, Persian, and premillennial idea of two widely separated physical resurrections first began to influence sub-Christian groups like the Serinthians, the Ebionites, and the Montanists, uh, ancient tongue speakers, which we should compare with our modern Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, and Jehovah Witnesses to see them in their right perspective on the very fringe areas of what might claim to be Christian out of the mainstream, and even then, only in some very, very, very few authentically Christian groups. Uh, let me interject at this point that premillennialism is not tolerated in the Calvinist churches of South Africa. If a man is a premillennialist, he is tolerated in love, but if a preacher, and very few of them are, he is instructed never to espouse premillennialism from the pulpit because that is deemed to be a deviation from the orthodox historic Christian faith. And hence, the heavy emphasis on uh, the understanding of early church history in uh, such circles of the Reformed faith in South Africa and indeed elsewhere. Now, the first authentically Christian thinker to advocate such premillennial views in writing, and even then only sometimes, while acknowledging premillennialism to be a minority opinion among Christians, in other words, he's saying he admits he's in the minority, was Justin Martyr in approximately 140-150 A.D. This occasional view of Justin was followed possibly by Plotinus in A.D. 175 and certainly followed around 185 by Irenaeus. It was perhaps followed around 220 A.D. by Tertullian, although there's so much optimism in Tertullian, one could claim he might have been a post-millennialist as much as a pre-millennialist. One thing is certain, though, Tertullian was not an amillennialist. In 240, we find this teaching of pre-millennialism more clearly taught by Commodian, in 250 by the Egyptian Nepos, in 260 by the almost totally unknown and insignificant Carassion, and in 310 in an extremely articulated form by Lactantius, very late date. But even these few Christian leaders, although they advocate the classic premillennialist teaching of double resurrections, unlike most modern premillennialists, these early premillennialists denied that the Jews were still God's chosen people, denied that the scriptures prophesied that the Jews would return to Palestine. Justin Martyr believed that the Gentile Christians would ultimately live in Jerusalem. Irenaeus was an anti-Judaistic covenant theologian, developed the recapitulation theory in a beautiful way. Tertullian believed in the massive worldwide conversion of the Gentiles prior to the millennium, however construed. Nepos was materialistic, not spiritualistic. Commodian believed in the establishment of the New Jerusalem before the millennium. Lactantius, who, by the way, frequently quotes from pagan sources to support his premillennial views, believed that the Gentiles would be enslaved during the thousand years. Cyprian and Methodius 
are also sometimes regarded as premillennialists, but this is not so. Indeed, Cyprian himself was not a premillennialist at all, because he clearly believed and taught that Christ's second coming would be followed by a final judgment. Nor was Methodius a premillennialist, flourished A.D. 300. Methodius believed that the first resurrection would immediately be followed by judgment day, or possibly and directly even by the eternal state. Clearly, none of the above, with a possible exception of Lactantius, the one who quoted pagan sources for his premillennialism, the one furthest removed from scripture as regards time and content, none of these early church premillennialists would feel at all at home among modern dispensationalists or even amongst most modern non-dispensationalistic classic premillennialists, let me add. In fact, after the nominal Christianization of the Roman Empire in 321 AD, classic premillennialism died for more than 12 centuries until revived by the Dutch Anabaptists right before the time of the Protestant Reformation. Now, if premillennialism did have genuinely Christian advocates between the times of Justin Martyr in A.D. 150 and Lactantius in A.D. 310, it had no advocates during the previous half-century, or century, I would say, from about A.D. 50 through A.D. 150. From John's revelation, and the date, of course, is debatable, somewhere, I would think, between A.D. 65 and possibly, though I doubt it, as late as 96. In that time frame, until the arrival of Justin Martyr, round about 140 or 150 AD, there is utterly no trace of premillennialism in any shape, form, or size in any of the extant Christian writings. The Didache, or the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, perhaps datable at AD 97, the Epistle of Barnabas, perhaps datable at 98. Uh, the work of Pseudo-Clement, perhaps datable at 135. Of Polycarp, 140. And Papias, 145. Even though uh, Irenaeus, 185, tells us, and unprovingly, that Polycarp and Papias were premillennialists, though I think it could be argued they were postmillennialists. None of these people advocate the premillennial doctrine of the double resurrection. Although some of them do, of course, refer to the different and scriptural theory of the earth's still future golden age. Moreover, not even one of the books of the so-called New Testament Apocrypha, which are often highly eschatological and apocalyptical, and which frequently refer to scripture, and to early Christian doctrines, to my knowledge, none of the New Testament apocryphal books ever advocates the premillennial two resurrection theories. It must also be pointed out that even during the later heyday of anti-Nicene Christian premillennialism between 150 and 310 AD, when it was still a very limited minority voice in the Church of the Lord Jesus, Ending with the nominal Christianization of the Roman Empire and the cessation of the persecution of Christians in 313 through 321 AD, 
This premillennial Christian view was always the view of only a tiny minority of genuine Christians. Even if Justin Martyr and Cotinus and Irenaeus and perhaps Tertullian and Commodian and Nepos and Carassian and Lactantius, each in his own differing way, perhaps did advocate some kind of premillennialism between 150 and 310, most of their contemporary fellow Christians did not. As a matter of fact, men like Tatian, A.D. 165, Theophilus, 170, men like Melito of Sardis, 173, Apollinarius of Hierapolis, 175, Egesippus, 178, at any rate, according to Eusebius, and men like Athenagoras, 183, Clement of Alexandria, 190 A.D., Caius of Rome, 210, Origen, 230, Hippolytus, 240, Dionysius of Alexandria, 255, Victorinus of Petau in Austria, 300, and the writers of the Apostolic Constitutions of 320 were all very strongly and outspokenly opposed to premillennialism, even in a Christian garb. And this they did in spite of themselves living during the pre-Constantinian time of the church's persecution by the pagan Roman Empire. One might have thought, with the church on the receiving end, not yet triumphant in any way in history, uh, that the church might have been predominantly premillennial. But this was not the case. Rather, was the opposite the case. Throughout this pre-Constantinian period, the majority of the Christian leaders maintained their eschatological optimism and victory orientation in spite of sometimes violent persecution. The only reason why even a minority of Christians ever adopted premillennialism at all at that time would seem to be on account of their eschatological pessimism which plagued some of them in their difficult-to-bear sufferings under the pagan Roman persecutions from 150 through 313 A.D. And, of course, after the triumph of Christianity, at the nominal Christianization of pagan Rome, after 321 A.D., the, the premillennial double resurrection theory was practically phased out of Christianity altogether. During the subsequent post-Christian centuries of victorious Christianity, there are no traces at all of premillennialism in all of the many writings of Eusebius, Athanasius, Aphrahat, Ephraim the Syrian, Hilary, Basil, Cyril, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory Nazianzen, Ambrose the teacher of St. Augustine, Chrysostom, Sulpicius Severus, Jerome, the mature Augustine. Augustine was a premillennialist, but only prior to his conversion from Venetianism to Christianity. He abandoned uh, this uh, teaching after embracing the counsel of God, which I think is very significant. And of course, all post-Augustinian theologians, right down through the climax of Christian influence in the 16th century Protestant Reformation, and notably in mid-17th century Puritanism, only little groups on the fringes of the church, like the Dutch Anabaptists and their successors, kept the premillennial theory alive prior to the advent of those two mighty opponents of Christian civilization, the French Revolution and her subsequent daughters, 
the socialistic and communist revolutions. And as in the early church, the modern revolutionary trend, with its ungodly opposition to and persecution of the truth, has turned some Christians, only by way of frustration, I believe, away from victory in this present age and toward defeatism. Now to overcome the modern revolutionary spirit now prevalent in our world, to overcome the spirit of Christian defeatism, which the modern anti-Christian revolutionists would so gladly encourage among us, it is necessary for the 20th century church to recover that optimistic Christian victory spirit of the first century apostles, the second century apostolic fathers, the third century martyrs, the fourth century conquerors, the 15th century reformers, the 16th century Puritans, and I would, may add the 19th and 20th century Afrikaner and other Calvinists elsewhere, because you see, there is no substitute for Christian victory. Well, now that we have dealt in broad sweeping outline with these events of the first four centuries or so in a general way, we must next proceed to prove our allegations. And let us proceed to deal with the earliest post-canonical writings attributed to those of whom the apostles wrote. And let us proceed to deal with the earliest post-canonical writings attributed to those of whom the apostles wrote. Namely, the apostles themselves, Barnabas, Clement, and Hermes. All of them mentioned by name in the New Testament itself. In the light then of the previously considered canonical scriptures, starting with Genesis and ending with Revelation, we must next consider the non-canonical and immediately subsequent didache or teaching of the twelve apostles, the epistle of Barnabas, the epistle of Clement, and the visions of Hermas, before going on later to consider subsequent representative Christian documents uh, down through our present age, uh, focusing especially on the South African contribution. In the process of doing this, we do want to draw attention to those scriptural elements of victory that are to be found even in the, the early church writings of that minority of Christians who premillennially denied the doctrine of the simultaneous resurrection of all of the dead. In other words, I'm saying don't write off that minority of early churchmen who were pre-mill, they were victory-oriented pre-mill in spite of their uh, uncharacteristic premillennialism. First then, we take a look at the didache, that is, the teaching of the twelve apostles so-called. And here we see the same theme being powerfully presented that we detected in the canonical scriptures. In chapters 1 and 2, we are told that there are two ways. One the way of life, and one the way of death. But there's a great difference between the two ways. The way of life, then, is this. First, thou shalt love God who made thee. And the second commandment of the teaching is, thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not commit pederasty or corrupt little boys, Thou shalt not practice witchcraft. Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is begotten. Thou shalt not covet the things of thy neighbor. Thou shalt not forswear thyself. Thou shalt not bear false 
the witness. We're talking about a document perhaps written in A.D. 97. Here's another quotation from the ninth chapter. Let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Remember, Lord, thy church to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in thy love and gather it from the fair winds sanctified for thy kingdom which thou hast prepared for it. For thine is the power and the glory forever. And then we need to take a look at this fascinating document known as the Epistle of Barnabas. Now then, we can't be quite sure that the Barnabas mentioned in the New Testament is the one that wrote it. But more important is the fact that this document was attributed to Barnabas and carried great weight in the early church and at least reflected a very widespread and significant sentiment in the early church. Barnabas, probably under the influence of Second Enoch, as well as under the influence of Scripture, Genesis 2, Hebrews 4, Malachi 4, specifically advocates the future advent of a law-keeping golden age after the first coming of the Lord Jesus and at the end of the world. It's indeed conceivable that Barnabas was at least technically a post-millennialist. Now Barnabas says in his epistle, chapter 4, the scripture saith, Moses was fasting in the mount forty days and forty nights, and received the covenant from the Lord, tables of stone written with the finger of the hand of the Lord. But, turning away to idols, the Israelites lost it. Moses also says to them, Behold these things, saith the Lord God, enter into the good land. Again, I will show thee how, in respect to us, meaning New Testament Christians, God has accomplished a second fashioning, fashioning of the law, in these last days. The Lord says, Behold, I will make the last like the first. In reference to this, then, the prophet proclaimed, Enter ye into the land flowing with milk and honey, and have dominion over it. The implication of that sinks down fully into your soul. Barnabas is saying here that the Christians are to march out in the name of God and to enter into the promised land and to have dominion over it. He also tells us, Since, having renewed us by the remission of our sins, God has made us according to another pattern. It is his purpose that we should possess the soul of children inasmuch as God has created us anew by his spirit. It means we should be teachable, as children are teachable. The scripture says concerning us, while God speaks to the Son, let us make man after our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the beasts of the earth and the fowls of heaven and the fishes of the sea. And the Lord said, on beholding the fair creature man, increase! and multiply and replenish the earth. These things were spoken to the Son, says Barnabas. Again, I will show thee how, in respect to us, first century Christians, 
God has accomplished a second fashioning in these last days. We, being quickened and kept alive by the faith of the promise and by the word, shall live ruling over the earth. But God said above, let them increase and rule over the fishes. Who then is able to govern the beasts or the fishes or the fowls of heaven? For we ought to perceive that to govern implies authority so that one should command and rule. And then, in subsequent chapters of this epistle, moreover, the Lord said to them in Deuteronomy, quote, I will establish my ordinances among this people. Moses, when he commanded, he shall not have any graven or molten image for your God, did so that he might reveal a type of Jesus. That what again does Moses say to Joshua? Take a book into thy hands and write what the Lord declares, that the Son of God will, in the last days, cut off from the roots all the house of, of Amalek. Further, also, it is written concerning the Sabbath in the Decalogue, which the Lord spoke face to face to Moses on Mount Sinai, and sanctify ye the Sabbath of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart. Wherefore also we Christians keep the eighth day with joyfulness, the day also on which Jesus rose again from the dead. Thou shalt not forsake the commandments of the Lord. Thou shalt not commit fornication. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not be a corrupter of youth. Thou shalt not let the word of God issue from thy lips with any kind of impurity. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Thou shalt not slay the child by procuring abortion. Nor again shalt thou destroy it after it is born. Thou shalt not covet what is thy neighbor's. Thou shalt remember the day of judgment. Last on Barnabas in the 15th chapter, the Sabbath is again mentioned at the beginning of the creation in this way. Quote, and God made in six days the work of his hands, and made an end on the seventh day, and rested on it, and sanctified it. Attend, my children, to the meaning of the expression, he finished in six days. This implies that the Lord will finish all things in six thousand years, for a day is with him a thousand years. And he himself testifies, saying, Behold, Today will be as a thousand years. Therefore, my children, in six days, that is, in six thousand years, all things will be finished. And he rested on the seventh day. This means when the sun, coming again, shall judge the ungodly and change the sun and the moon and the stars, then shall he truly rest on the seventh day. You perceive how God speaks. Your present Sabbaths are not acceptable to me, but that Sabbath is which I have made, namely this, when, giving rest to all things, I shall make a beginning of the eighth day, that is, a beginning of another world. Of course, there are obscurities in that passage, but uh, the thing that comes through to me loud and clear in Barnabas is the addressees were not to expect an any minute imminent return of Christ, but until that eighth day of the Lord were to arrive, 
they were to keep the commandments of God and thereby to undertake the conquest and the subjugation and dominion over the earth. More briefly, we can take a look at Clement of Rome. Seems to be the person mentioned by Paul in Philippians chapter 4. He wrote an early letter to the Corinthians. First epistle, chapters 43, 44, and an excerpt from 53. He tells us, These in Christ who were entrusted with such a duty by God appointed those ministers before mentioned, when the blessed Moses also, a faithful servant in all of his house, noted down in the sacred books all the injunctions which were given him, and when the other prophets also followed him. Our apostles also appointed those ministers already mentioned, and afterwards gave instructions. When Moses went up into the mount and abode there, with fasting and humiliation, forty days and forty nights, the Lord said unto him, Moses, Moses, get thee down quickly from hence, for thy people whom thou didst bring out of the land of Egypt have committed iniquity. They have speedily departed from the way in which I commanded them to walk, and have made to themselves molten images. And then, in chapters uh, 36 and 37, Clement of Rome asks some rhetorical questions. Shall we become slothful in well-doing? God forbid that any such course should be followed by us, echoes of Romans 6. But rather let us hasten with all energy and readiness of mind to perform every good work. For the Creator and Lord of all, for the Creator and Lord of all, himself rejoices in his works. For by his infinitely great power he established the heavens. Above all, with his holy and undefiled hands he formed man, the most excellent of his creatures, and truly, great through the understanding given him, the express likeness of his own image. For thus says God, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, so God made man, male and female, created he them. Having thus finished all these things, he approved them, and he blessed them and said, Increase and multiply. We see then how all righteous men have been adorned with good works, and how the Lord himself, adorning himself with his works, rejoiced. Having therefore such an example, let us without delay accede to his will, and let us work the work of righteousness with our whole strength. This is the way, beloved, in which we find our Savior, even Jesus Christ. By him the Lord has willed that we should taste of immortal knowledge. Concerning his Son, the Lord spoke thus, Thou art my Son, today have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And again he saith to him, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. But who are his enemies? All the wicked, and those who set themselves to oppose the will of God. Let us then, men and brethren, with all energy, act the part of soldiers in accordance with his 
holy commandments. That's still the first century. And then there's that extraordinary letter known as the Shepherd of Hermes. This seems to have been someone living in Rome and apparently a friend of Paul, probably or at any rate possibly the same person mentioned in Philippians chapter 4. In book 3, chapter 3, Hermes speaks of a great tree. He says that this great tree casts its shadow over plains and mountains and all the earth. And this tree, he says, is the law of God that was given to the whole world. And this law is the Son of God, proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And the people who are under its shadow are they who have heard the proclamation and who have believed upon him. The great and glorious Michael, Michael Christ, is he who has authority over this people and who governs them. For this is he who gave them the law into the hearts of believers. He accordingly superintends them to whom he gave it to see if they have kept the same. And they who returned their branches green as they had received them are the venerable and the just, those who have kept the commandments of the Lord. In the first book, and uh, chapter 3, paragraphs 4 and 8, we have the vision of six angels constructing a building. Hermes asks the church, standing next to him, who are these six young men who are engaged in building? And the church replied, these are the holy angels of God, who were first created to whom the Lord handed over his holy creation, that they might increase and build up and rule over the whole creation. By these will the building of the tower be finished. But who are the other persons who are engaged in carrying the stones? These also are holy angels of the Lord, but the former six are more excellent than these. The building of the tower will be finished, and all will rejoice together around the tower, and they will glorify God because the tower is finished. Do you not see the tower yet being built? When the tower is finished and built, then comes the end. Finally, the same Hermes, writing in approximately A.D. 100, uh, gives us the following picture of the tribulation. You will see the saints go through the tribulation. He says, A virgin meets me, adorned as if she were proceeding from the bridal chamber, clothed entirely in white, and with white sandals, and veiled up to her forehead. Her head was covered by a hood, and she had white hair. And I knew from my former visions that this was the church, and I became more joyful. She saluted me and said, Hail, O man. I returned her salutation and said, Lady, hail. And she answered and said unto me, Has nothing crossed your path? I said, I was met by a beast of such a size that it could destroy peoples. But through the power of the Lord and his great mercy, I escaped from it. Where did you escape from it, says she? Because you cast your care on God and opened your heart to the Lord. Go therefore and tell the elect of the Lord of his mighty deeds 
and say to them that this beast is a type of great tribulation coming. If then you prepare yourselves, if you repent with all of your heart and turn to the Lord, it will be possible for you to escape. If your heart be pure and spotless, if you spend the rest of the days of your life in serving the Lord blamelessly, cast your cares upon the Lord, and he will direct them. Trust the Lord, ye doubters, for he is all-powerful and can turn his anger away from you and send scourges on the doubters. The bottom line is, God will save his church, not by rapturing them out of tribulation, but by giving them the integrity and the courage to march victoriously through tribulation unto victory. Thank you. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.